Right, there are two readings this evening. Uh, the first is the book of Obadiah, which is found on page seven and runs onto page nine. And then on page nine, you'll see the reading from the New Testament, specifically the book of Romans, uh, chapter 11. Uh, but returning now to the book of Obadiah, page seven, uh, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verses 17 to 24. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, 
do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, crazy stuff, but let's have fun with it. Um, just before we begin, as, as uh, Andy said before, I think, as Andy said, uh, the, wedding, the couples who are getting married at this church, is about 10 couples or so who are doing the preparation. I know this is a bit... Um, Oh, but can you put your hand up so that we can properly welcome you? Here are the couples who are planning to get married at the church in the next couple of six months or so. Can we welcome those guys? These guys are here for the next three weeks. I told them all about Obadiah just before we started, so hang in there. Hey, I'll tell you what I'd love you to do. I'd love you to tell me later if some of, it, some of this made sense, where you sit there and went, you know what, I got it. I think I got it. love you to hear your thoughts. Feel free to email me if you like. Uh, my email address is on the back of the order of service of the zine. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. So Father, challenge us today by your spirit. Challenge our pride. Challenge our apathy. Forgive us for our sin and restore us in Christ by whose power we pray. Amen. So we are fourth week into a series of the not-so-minor prophets where there is no sugarcoating of the human soul nor mere whispering about God's grace. The prophets are honest about both and proud about God's grace or bold about it. In this series, we want to hear God's heartbeat. We want to open the doors of the prophets and enter into God's heart and listen and learn and get to know him. In the end, we want to trust Jesus because these prophets are fulfilled in him. He's the light after all the darkness of the prophets. He is the resurrection after all the death that you read about in these Words. The idea of the series is simple. One prophet each week for 12 weeks with a break in between. And you can see some of that series on page one of your zine. So today I want to speak in favour of God's universal judgment. That is, he judges all, not just some. He has a judgment that rises. You'll see that in a moment. That is, God has the right, because he's God, because he's creator, to judge all nations, all people, 
Judah and Edom, we're going to hear today, and Australia, he has the right to judge all actions and all inactions, all thoughts or moments or secrets. In Amos chapter 9, verse 9, we've got this extraordinary image of the sieve of God's judgment and not a pebble hits the ground. Nothing falls through the cracks. We learn that here in Obadiah, but we also learn that his judgment rises up beyond his anger and his justice to what Obadiah calls deliverance, redemption, as James said earlier, salvation from Jerusalem to the world. And so the movement here in Obadiah is the same movement in all the prophets, which is there's a death first and then a resurrection. So of neighbouring Edom, that's a nation, God will say in the final verse of Obadiah, in verse 21 on page 9, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, to govern the mountains of Esau, and here's the line, the kingdom will be the Lord's. It'll all become God's kingdom. God will reign. What do we pray? Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. That's what we say to God. We say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at the end of Job, Obadiah, God's saying, in the end, God's will will be done. So let's look at this little book, this little piece of profound, disturbing and powerful poetry. It's the smallest of the Minor Prophets. I think it's the only one we read fully through. If I can put it this way, it's the most minor of the Minor Prophets, 21 verses, that's it, written about 2,600 years ago. Last time you read something that old was when you visited the British Museum. Obadiah, we will discover, is a word for a defeated people. Have you ever felt defeated? It's a word for a bullied People, when giving an interview on the prophets, American pastor Eugene Peterson said this, he said, poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. Are your eyes too blurred with too much gawking? Are your ears dulled with too much chatter? Do you miss around you and within you what God has? I wonder if this book is a word of one of those kinds of poets, a word from God, where we could be found ready to be dragged into the depth of reality and then lifted up out of it. And by the way, I say that even if this is your first time in one of the prophets from the Jewish scriptures. This, these 21 verses were written concerning Edom, but with Judah listening in. Edom is a nation bordering Judah, which is sort of southern Israel. Edom was both an enemy of God's people 2,600 years ago, and yet brothers of Israel at the same time. Why? Because it was the nation, both nations were derived from Abraham, same 
father, if I can put it this way. Abraham's grandson Esau is the father of the nation of Edom. And Abraham's grandson Jacob, Esau's twin brother, was in some ways the father of Israel. Esau, in fact, was the twin brother of Israel, Jacob. Esau, by the way, was red and hairy, and the word Esau and Edom means red. They live in the hill country, so they're sort of cliff dwellers. They live high, and if you were to visit today the same area right now, you would be in southwest Jordan, bordering Israel in the south. So three questions to get you into this book. Number one, if you're writing notes. Number one, what is God's judgment on Edom? What's the judgment? What's the ruling? Secondly, what did they do wrong that they would deserve such a judgment? And thirdly, what will God do after that judgment? That's where you have the movement up. What's God's judgment on Edom, this nation? What did they do wrong? And what will God do after that judgment? So firstly, what's God's judgment on Edom? What's the message from the Lord for this neighboring nation? Well, it's in verses one and two, page seven. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, here it is, here's the message, rise, let us go against her, against Edom, for battle. There it is. Verse 2, see, I will make you small among the nations. At the end of this battle, you will be utterly despised, brought low. Now you say, harsh. I say, I hope you'll see, fair. In fact, anyone who's ever wanted a bully to be held to account and anybody who's been angry because a bully wasn't held to account will see the justice here. You want bullies held to account, but you want to deny God the teeth to do the same? So the bottom line is, in all the fighting at the Middle East, there'll be a moment in history, thousands of years ago, when the other nations will rise up and they will defeat Edom, leaving her desolate. And so what do you know? <laughs> there was military tension then and there's military tension today. But the difference between then and now is that then God was thundering at the head of these nations. This wasn't just the classic depressing ebb and flow of nations emptying nations. This is not just bad politics and swords, the timeless truth that power fights against power. This was a specific and time-limited judgment from God, and it speaks of a moment of God's judgment in history when this nation in southwest Jordan gets made small. And in history, God used this terrible, awful, wicked king called Nebuchadnezzar, you know, bloodthirsty, to drive them out together with the other nations. By the way, the same king was used by God to judge Judah too. What do you know? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are real moments in history with a prophet's word, a prophet's take on it all. Now, does God do the same thing today as he did then? My answer is no. I do not believe so. 
Not in the same way, not so specifically, and I'll say why when I answer the third question. But what is the judgment? Well, basically, you'll get the same treatment you gave others. So justice will be done, look at verse 15 on page 8, as you have done, it will be done to you. What do you know, you know? Your deeds will return upon your own head. In other words, you tore down others, you'll be torn down. You thought you'd get away with it, but God was watching. So that's the judgment on Edom. Secondly, what did they do wrong? Well, here it is. They had pride in their heart, which led to apathy towards their brother, and that led to bullying isn't that the path, by the way? Pride, often mixed with resentment, which leads to apathy or coldness towards another, which then allows you the justification to bully, to hurt. Suddenly, by the way, Obadiah becomes relevant to our times. So firstly, they had pride. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart. By the way, that's always where pride resides. I don't think pride can reside anywhere else. Pride of your heart, says God to Edom, has deceived you. Pride always does by its nature. Makes you think something about yourself that isn't true. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? I love poets, by the way. Poets are so great. Edomites lived in high country, and God uses that to say, you think of yourself highly. You thought, who can bring me down? God himself cannot sink this ship. So God says, verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. You never think of God as saying that, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You're about to get a dose of reality, and that's because God opposes the proud. Asked a pilot once a few years back, um, some of you know this story, asked a pilot a few years back, what was the primary cause of aeroplane accidents outside of mechanical failure? So take away all mechanical failure, what was the primary cause of plane crashes? Thought about it, paused, didn't share my faith or my understanding of the human heart. His answer was pride. I'm not too drunk, I can fly the plane. I can fly into that storm like no one else can. And no one else can tell me how to fly my plane. I don't have to do the checks, regulation. Visible thing in the heart, lodged deep in the heart, can cause actual carnage on the ground. It, this invisible thing can cause people to die. In mere Christianity, Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on thing and people. There's a sort of cynicism where you know and others don't. And of course, as long as you are looking down on thing and people, you cannot see something that is above you. God is above you. Now in the New Testament, Jesus takes our eyes off the land then and the temple then, and he asks us instead to focus on 
his resurrection as our hope. So when Jesus said um, to the people of Israel who had all their hopes in the temple, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a dare. You tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. When he said that, he changed everything. It wasn't that the Jewish scriptures were wrong. They were thoroughly right. But they were always pointing to something higher, something greater, something grander. And so the place that we care about now is not the old Jerusalem, which you can fly into now, which I think you go by Tel Tel Aviv. Is that how you get in? Then you have to catch a bus down to Jerusalem. Yeah, you could do that. That's not where we have our hopes. Not since the first century, not since the Jewish believers in Jesus fled Jerusalem because they knew that the promises of God weren't ultimately fulfilled in that old plot of land, but rather we care about the new Jerusalem that is promised in the future at his appearing, at Christ's appearing. And what that means is that we don't fight and defend land. The Crusades were wrong. Rather, we fight our hearts. We fight the pride of our hearts. And we defend not land, but we defend resurrection hope. And so the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. And so he writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, because that's what we're looking at here. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, not that he might destroy you, but rather that he might lift you up. Resurrection. In due time, cast all your anxiety on him precisely because he cares for you. You had pride. What did it lead to? It led to apathy towards this brother nation. Look at verse 11. On the day you stood aloof when your brother Judah was destroyed. I was a Seinfeld fan. I looked it up this week. Final episode aired 20 years ago this year, which freaks me out. In the final two episodes, they had uh, what was... Painful as an ending, but um, satisfying in retrospect. In the final two episodes, spoiler alert, by the way. La, la, la. In the final two episodes, Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, and George are waiting for transport. They witness an overweight man getting carjacked at gunpoint by a criminal. And what do they do? Instead of helping him, They crack jokes about the man's size. Kramer films it on the camcorder and they proceed to walk away. The humour of the episode is, of course, they get arrested and put in jail for their apathy, which is the perfect ending, really, to a series about nothing. Perfect Gen X television show. Well, that, Seinfeld, is this, Edom. On the day you stood aloof, Judah, also known as Jacob here, was being ransacked for her sin, let's get that right, by Babylon. They were a defeated nation. And Obadiah, when he wrote this, was sitting in the ruins of decimated Jerusalem. I guess you could say he's like Job sitting in his ashes after his home has been destroyed, or a little bit like the disciples who were wondering 
whether it was all worth it when they saw Jesus arrested, crucified, and, and killed. Obadiah is perhaps like you and me when the good things we thought God had promised never came. And I was left feeling isolated and distant from God, and Obadiah is sitting there going, whoa. But Edom didn't care. This nation next to it didn't care. Verse 11, on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off your brother Jacob's wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Where have you heard that before? You were like one of them. You didn't care. And more, you gloated. Verse 12, you shouldn't gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Pride can eat away at the walls of your heart and make you callous, hard to people's pain. I read somewhere that the German people after World War II were relatively quick to admit this. That is, they could recognise that German pride, Liebenstrom, fed by resentment, World War I, led to a callousness to the pain of others. And millions died. Carnage on the ground. Edom saw their brother weakened and went in after Babylon to ransack a weakened people. They kicked them while they were down. Judah's knees were knocked over and they came in and slapped them on the head. Verse 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. In other words, they walked in after Babylon and then looted. And God sees. No doubt they thought of themselves as high and powerful and mighty because they were standing and Judah wasn't. And maybe they saw themselves as good and moral and upright because they were children of Abraham through Esau and they weren't as bad as Babylon. Beware pride, it leads to apathy and then carnage. In uh, the book Moby Dick, Herman Melville says this, he says, I say we good Presbyterian Christians, maybe I should translate that to Anglicans, Good Anglican Christians. Is there such a thing? In Moby Dick, I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagan or whatnot, because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. Moby Dick. Heaven Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Gosh, I love that. All somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. You say, not me, I'm a good person. I'm like, you know. Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag up, up you know, famously said, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, like they thought then, nor between classes, 
as perhaps Australians thought in the past, nor between political parties either, as we think today. But rather, the line separating good and evil cuts through every human heart and through all human hearts. Or my favourite of all, Salman Rushdie, for the barbarians were not only at our gates, but within our skins. We were our own wooden horses, each one of us full of our own doom. We were both the bombers and the bombs. The explosions were our own evil. No need to look for foreign explanations, though there was and is evil beyond our frontiers as well as within. We've chopped away at our own legs. We engineered our own fall, and now we can only weep at the last for what we were too enfeebled, too corrupt, too little, too contemptible to defend. We're going to confess our sins in a moment's time, and it's going to be thoroughly appropriate. But why do we do it? Because we know something else. We know the gospel, the good news. So thirdly, what will God do after that judgment? Well, here in Obadiah, he has set a day for all nations, not just for Edom. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you've done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned to your head. In other words, Edom aren't the only bad guys. Judah was, Babylon was, and we are too. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, anyone who thinks he's strong, take heed lest he fall. Right? Moby Dick, for we are all some, somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. And here in Obadiah, the location of God's grace will be upon his people. He will rise in defense of his people, and they will rise with him. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance, salvation, redemption, and it will be holy. In the end, this is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. In Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. It will be holy. Here, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Jewish people have said in different ways throughout history that this means that God wants them to have that land. And that, of course, is the gist of verses 19 through 21, ending in these words, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, to govern the mountains of Esau. They'll own the land, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. God will have the lot. That is, after all this downward Death will come, a resurrection, deliverance, salvation, a resurrection of the people of Israel, and here they shall have the land. Now, followers of Jesus Christ who heard Jesus say, tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, the hope is not in that building, but in my resurrection. Followers of Jesus Christ say that the story of Israel then, Jewish scriptures, points to, and it always intended to point to, a grander, more comprehensive picture of hope for the future than anything you can say about the state of Israel today, or even then. That land was only ever a picture of something bigger, something more ultimate, 
And in this story, their death, as significant as it was for them, of course, was actually a picture of another death, an ultimate death, Jesus' death for sin, where Israel gathered around Jesus, not Judah, and cast lots for her clothing, for his clothing. Let me get that right. And that their resurrection of a nation promised here, as important as it is to many Jews then, and some now, was in fact a picture of another ultimate resurrection. Jesus' resurrection. So the location of our hopes is not in land. So it changes how you think, of, how you think about what the Christians were doing during the Crusades. And it even changes how you think about 1948. And the creation of the State of Israel, I Googled today and I found out the Negev, which is to be given to Judah, you know, is part of Israel now, and in fact, it's where they had their, you know, a lot of their military bases. But we have the location of our hopes, not on land, but on a new Jerusalem to come, a renewed earth that God will bring in his time, where forgiveness becomes a door to resurrection hope. You've got to have forgiveness first. And then you live in hope, the hope of peace reigning on earth where there is no abuse, no injustice, and no bullying because there can be no abuse, there can be no injustice, there can be no bullying because of the way God governs this future that he has prepared for those who love him, where there'll be no more wars, and no more tears, no more mourning or crying or pain, says the Apostle John in Revelation, for the old order of things has passed away. So what do we say then in conclusion? Well, in Christ, you've received the promises that were given to Israel, even though most of us here today are not Jewish. We are Gentile. But listen to the warning of Hebrew of Romans 11, that second strange reading that was read out to us a moment ago. In Romans chapter 11, Paul makes the point that some in Israel didn't believe in their own Messiah, but many who are outside of Israel, like me, did believe in the Jewish Messiah and then believed in Jewish hopes. But he says, Israel is like the olive tree and it's a root. That's where the nourishing comes from. That's where the promises come from. That's what God did in the Old Testament. So they're like the olive tree root for hope, and you're the branch that has been sort of sewn in to the Jewish hopes. Now, listen to Paul. Romans chapter 11, verse 17 on page 9. If some of the branches have been broken off, Jewish people who don't believe, and you, though a wild olive shoot, a Gentile, have been sewn in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, in other words, you have hope, if that's you, verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, consider this. You don't support the root, the root supports you. There's something about the promises to Israel that is magnificent. And when I meet Jewish people today, I say, I thank you for your scriptures. I read them every day. Verse 21, do not be arrogant, but tremble. We sung it a moment ago. With trembling, rejoice. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. He has a mighty hand. 
Verse 22 perhaps is the key. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Consider both. Sternness to those who fell, for example, the Edomites, but kindness or grace to you, provided that you continue in his grace. So in the end, we trust Jesus Christ. The prophets are fulfilled in him. We want to remain in grace, ahead of the renewal of all things, and that's because Jesus is the light that dispels all the darkness. He is the resurrection after all the death. Amen.